Well, it's good to see everybody here this morning, and I just want to say thank you to all of those who helped and were here and participated in our hymn fest last night. It was a huge success. I was a little worried with the weather, how many people were actually going to be here. I'm going to estimate right around 200, maybe a little more, were here. Uh, Ten or so congregations other than ours were represented uh, and it was really a good night of uh, singing and singing praises to God and encouraging each other and speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So thanks to the, all, the, all of you who, who helped to make that a uh, successful uh, event. I panicked a little bit after Bible class. I was coming up this way and somebody told me, said, there's some people here who want to who are looking for you they said they knew you when you were a teenager and i started to bolt out the other door i was i was a little worried about that uh but uh it turns out that uh john and paula vines are here sitting next to kenya and i miscalculated on the math a minute ago but they did not actually know me as a teenager i was actually 20 uh, when they moved to Dallas and started going to church at Webb Chapel where my, where my parents went. Because, like I said, had they known me as a teenager, either they were leaving or I was. Uh, and they would not be getting around my children. Or grandchildren, for that matter. Uh, but uh, it's good to have them with us. Uh, they are homeless uh, by choice. Uh, they have an RV and they are driving around the world. Well, maybe not around the world. That'd be a little difficult, but, uh, they stopped in here and glad to, uh, glad to have them with us, uh, this morning. Uh, we ended, those of you that were keeping up, we ended our series on first Peter last week after 30 lessons. And, uh, some of you already were asking me, well, what are we going to do next? Where are we going to go next? Well, I'll tell you, now, those of you that have been here for 11 plus years, don't panic. But we're going to go, eventually, we're going to go to the book of Hebrews. And those of you that have been here 11 years are going, wait a minute, we already did that. And you're right. The book of Hebrews was the first book that we did when I became the full-time preacher. I understand that. I know that. I'm not that senile that I have forgotten that. And I know that all of you are not that senile and think you've forgotten it. But we are going to approach it from a little different way. Believe it or not, I've learned something since then. I'm not going to say I'm a little smarter, but, you know, I've matured a little bit maybe. And so we're going to approach it from a little different angle than we did 10 or 11 years ago, and many of you either weren't here then, or you didn't listen, and so it'd be new to you anyway, so that's where, that's where we're going to go in a couple of weeks, but we're not going to get there yet, we're going to get there in a couple of weeks, but this morning I wanted to talk a little bit about excuses. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm a little hypocritical when it comes to excuses, I hate it when people use excuses on me. But I find it very easy to use excuses on other people. When you give it to me, it's an excuse. When I give it to you, it's a valid reason. Isn't that the way it works? 
And we understand that. And, and uh, you know, some, some excuses are maybe harmless. You know, the old the dog ate my homework excuse. I don't know if anybody ever actually used that. Uh, but some excuses are quite tragic. Kids made fun of me or bullied me, and so I shot up the school. Wow. That's pretty serious. That's pretty tragic. The Bible talks about excuses. In Luke chapter 14, and you may think we're going there. That's not where we're going, so don't bother turning there. Uh, in Luke chapter 14, we had that parable of the great banquet. Remember that? Where all the people were invited and accepted the invitation. And then it was time for the banquet. And the master sends out the servants. And they begin one by one to make excuses why they couldn't come to the banquet. Well... That has to do with that parable, and on Sunday nights, we'll eventually get to that parable. But that parable has to do with those who had already accepted the invitation. I think we sometimes misinterpret that parable a little bit. But that's not what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about this morning, what I want to talk about, are excuses that people give not to become a Christian. Now... You may be sitting here this morning and you may be saying, looking around the room going, well, that doesn't apply to a whole lot of us in here. You know, most of us that are here this morning, we're already Christians. We've already made that commitment. Well, maybe it will help us determine whether we've made a full commitment. But there may be others in here this morning who have not made that commitment to Christ, who have not accepted the gospel call. And you may meet people. Who offer up one of these excuses. And maybe this will help in talking to, talking to them. So this morning we're going to look at five excuses people make not to become a Christian. And the first one is simply, I don't need to. I don't need to become a Christian. Christianity doesn't have anything for me. Some people quite literally see no need for, the, for God or Christ or religion in their lives. And perhaps they believe that they will make it on their own. If there is a God, if there is an afterlife, I'm a good person. I'm more or less a morally upright person. I don't kill people. You know, I don't rob people. I don't, I don't do any horrible things. I'm a, I'm a loving family man or a, a mother or whatever the case may be. And I don't need religion. I'm good enough. I'm a good person. Yet the Bible is clear that outside of Christ and the grace that we receive through obedient faith, we are lost. There is no sliding moral scale. It is not, you know, well, I may be, I may not be a Christian, but I'm better than these people. I may not be as good as these people, but, you know, I'm still not. And it's not one of those things where it's, you know, more or less. It's either or. The Bible clearly teaches that we are either in one state or another. We are either lost or saved. We are either in Christ or outside of Christ. And we look, and when we look at the New Testament, when we look at the scriptures, we see that it is not nothing. Okay, that was a double negative and I meant to use it. It's not nothing 
to be outside of Christ. Isaiah chapter 59, 1 and 2 says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short that he cannot list, uh, reach us or, or his ears so dull that he cannot hear. But our sins and iniquities have separated us from God. Whoa. Whoa. That's serious. I do not want to be separated from God. And outside of Christ... On our own, our sins and iniquities have separated us from God. In 1 Corinthians chapter, excuse me, in Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, Paul writes, There is no one righteous, not even one. And then in verse 23, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we might think, well, okay, we've sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. What's the big deal about that? What's the, what's the ramifications of that? What are the consequences of that? Well, he goes on in chapter 6 of Romans and verse 23 and says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And he's not talking there about just physical death. Because... All of us are going to die physically. Now that may be a consequence of sin in the world in general. But he's talking about here the wages of sin is spiritual death. That eternal separation from God. Paul explains it even more vividly in Ephesians chapter 2 beginning in verse 1 when he says, As for you... You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work to those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. Now, those of you who are, are regular members here, you know that I, for some reason, I am fixated on that phrase. Objects of God's wrath. Go back to the Old Testament. Think about some of the objects of God's wrath. Think about the entire world. When he flooded the entire world and saved only eight in the ark. Think about Sodom and Gomorrah and the fire and brimstone and sulfur and burning, whatever all that stuff was that consumed those two cities. Think about Nadab and Abihu, the two sons of Aaron, who offered strange sacrifice to God. And the fire leapt out and consumed them. And I think about Korah, Dothan and and Abiram, who opposed Moses in the desert. And Moses said, you people better step back. You better get away from those folks. And the ground opened up. And swallowed them whole. And then, you remember what happened then? This is the coolest, I don't know that that's the right word. 
And then the ground closed back. Whoa! Ooh! Objects of God's wrath. Without Christ, that's where we are. Without Christ, that's who we are. It does not matter how good we are. The story of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 reminds us of that. It lists, it, it, it talks about Cornelius. It gives his resume. This was a good man. Even though he was a Gentile, he prayed to God. He gave to the poor. He was considered, you know, he was, he was looked up to by his subordinates and his superiors. He was a good, decent person. But God said, Peter, you need to go preach him the gospel. You need to tell him about Jesus. You need to let him know that even though he is a good person, he still needs to be forgiven of his sins. I am not here to tell you that you're not a good person. But I am here to tell you that you're not good enough. You will never be good enough. I will never be good enough. None of us on our own outside of Christ can ever be good enough. Because if we could be good enough, then Jesus didn't even have to come, did he? If we could do it on our own, what was the purpose? Why would God go to all that you know, and sacrifice his son and the cross and the crown of thorns and the spear and all that. Why would he make his son go through that if we could be good enough on our own? Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth and the life. In our high school Bible class, we were looking at John chapter 10 where Jesus said, I am the gate. The gate. I am the way. No one comes to the Father but by me, Jesus said. Our human sinful condition demands that we need the salvation that only comes through obedience to the gospel. Second excuse people give is that I need to get my life straightened out first. And although they sound different, if you look at those first two, you say, well, they don't really have anything to do with each other. Yeah, they kind of do. Because what this one says is that, you know, I will fix myself up, clean myself up, and then I will come to Christ. And then I will come to God. Some sincerely believe that they need to straighten out their lives first, clean themselves up, and then they'll be ready to come to Christ. That is totally backwards. We do not fix ourselves up. We do not clean ourselves up and then bring ourselves to Christ. We bring Christ our broken lives, our sinful, dirty, messed up lives for him to fix. Thinking this way is kind of like, and I actually heard this. I don't remember who I heard it from, so they might be in this very room. But I heard somebody once say, I got to go home and clean my house because the housekeeper's coming tomorrow. What? Some of you ladies are going, I understand that. (laughs) What do you mean you gotta, you gotta, you gotta clean the house before the housekeeper comes? Well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. 
It's like an alcoholic who says, I am going to get sober. And then I'm going to start attending AA meetings. I don't think that's the way it works. It's like a fat, out of shape guy like me. Saying, I'm going to go on a diet. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to get in shape. And then I'm going to join a gym. No, no, no. That's, that's, that's backwards. We go to those places to help us achieve our goal. We don't clean ourselves up. We don't fix ourselves. And then we come to Jesus. We come to Jesus to help us, to fix us, to heal us. Jesus himself said, it is not the healthy that need the doctor. It's the sick. Now, this has actually happened to me. But I've been in a city where I have been. I had a doctor's appointment, but then I got sick. And so I didn't go to the doctor's appointment. Does that make sense? I had a regularly scheduled doctor, you know, just a normal. And, but then I got sick. And so I, well, that really doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? I'm going to get myself fixed up first and then I'll go see the doctor. Jesus says, you don't get yourself fixed up and then come to me. Because like the answer to the previous argument, you can't fix yourself up. We come to Jesus for the power to fix ourselves. Paul said, I, I, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you. He didn't say rest up and then come to me. He said, come to me when you're weary and heavy laden, and then I will give you rest when you are burdened. The power to change our lives doesn't come before Christ. The power to change our lives comes through Christ. And I know maybe that's this, this argument. Maybe, maybe we are part of the problem. Because maybe we give off the idea that we're all fixed. We're all better. And somebody who has a need and is struggling looks at perhaps us and says, whoa, man, they got it all together. We ain't got it all together, do we? I don't. I don't know about you. But we need to be open. We need to let people know that, hey, we're, we still struggle too. You know, hopefully we're better than we were. Christ has worked in our lives. But we cannot fix ourselves first. The third excuse that some people might give for not becoming a Christian is I don't know enough. And you know, on face value, just that seems legitimate. You know, I I don't really know if I know enough in order to become a Christian. And I think maybe in our Day and age, because, you know, Christianity has been around so long and the Bible has been around so long and teaching has been around so long. And, and, you know, we, we, those of us who, those of us who grew up in the church, we've been studying the Bible for so long that, you know, somebody who, to whom that is strange, that can be intimidating. Man, I don't, I don't know a whole lot. 
But you know what? When you go to the book of Acts, you go back to the beginning of the church. And what I see from the book of Acts is a lot of people who didn't know a whole lot when they became a Christian. You know, in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached that sermon, the big majority of it was Jewish history. He talked about all the stuff that went on in the past. And then he basically says to them, you killed God's son. And they were like, whoa. They were cut to the heart and said, what should we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, there wasn't a whole lot of teaching that went on that they didn't already know. You know, he convicted them. He made sure that they understood that they were responsible for killing God's son. Not specifically, but their sins. And they did 3,000 of them. Did what Peter told them to do. In Acts chapter 8, Philip is led to the Ethiopian who is on his way traveling. And he gets up in the chariot and the man says, or Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? And the man said, no, not really. I don't get it. And he had a scroll of Isaiah that talked about, you know, he died, he was pierced for our sins and like a sheep led. And, and, and the man says, is, is, is this guy talking about himself or somebody else? And it says that Philip began from that point to preach unto him Jesus. Now, I don't know how long this Bible study was. It doesn't say. It could have been a couple hours. But it wasn't that long. And the Ethiopians said, whoa, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized? And Philip said, let's do it. Well, not exactly, but close enough. And he and the Ethiopian went down into the water and he was baptized. Now, here was a man who knew something about the Old Testament. He was a convert to Judaism. Didn't know a whole lot, but knew something. But apparently hadn't even heard of Jesus. Didn't know anything about Jesus. And in a matter of a relatively short time, Philip taught him enough to be saved. Acts chapter 10, Peter and, excuse me, Paul and Silas are in jail. And the thunder comes and the earthquake comes and their shackles are released and the jail door opens. And the jailer, fearing that all the prisoners have escaped, because who wouldn't, right? He's ready to kill himself. And Paul says, don't do that. We're all here. And the jailer says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas went back to the jailer's house. And they had a Bible study. Again, I don't know how long it lasted. I know it wasn't that long. Because it says at that same hour of the night. The jailer and his household were baptized. 
You think they understood a whole lot? Again, these are people who had no connection to the Old Testament. The old law. The Jewish way. They, they, they wouldn't have known anything about that perhaps. But somehow in that short period of time, Paul and the rest of them, Paul and Silas taught them enough that they could be saved. We don't need to know everything. That's what maturing as a Christian is about. Now you, if I were to ask you, if I were to ask you, take a card or whatever, and I want you to write down, what do you have to know in order to be saved? Well, it might be a good little exercise sometime. But I did that, and here are my basics. You want to know what my, this, this is mine. If I had one minute to share the gospel with somebody, this is what it would boil down to. We are sinners condemned to eternal death. Jesus, God's own son, was our perfect sacrifice, paying the price we could not pay. We receive God's grace through faith that includes belief, repentance, confession, baptism, and living a holy life. Now, my list, that's it. That's it. Is there more? Yeah, there's more. There's a lot more, isn't there? There's a lot more. But I think that's enough. I think that's enough. And so the idea that I, ha- I don't know enough is kind of like, again, I need to straighten my life out first. It just, we're never going to know everything. And when we look at the examples of conversion in the New Testament, those people didn't know a lot. They learned a lot. But they didn't know a lot when they first made that commitment. The fourth excuse that some people give is that there are just too many hypocrites in the church. There are just too many hypocritical Christians. And some will use that hypocrisy or the inconsistent lives they see of Christians as an excuse not to become one themselves. And maybe, maybe that is an indictment on us. And the example that we're living before other people in the world and the influence that we are having. But ultimately, it's actually a very weak excuse. Sure. Every Christian should be living a holy life in line with God's teachings. That, that's the goal. That's what we want. We all want to be living holy lives that are doing exactly what God would want us to do. However, are you willing to let somebody else's failings keep you from the greatest joy, the greatest peace, The greatest love, the greatest happiness, the greatest hope that you could ever know. Are you willing to let somebody else's failings keep you from all the wonders that God wants for you? That's the old cut off your nose to spite your face thing. I never understood that, but you know, I I know what it means. I know the context of it. And I remember Norman, 
And for those, Norman was our preacher here for 25 years. I remember Norman would, would often say concerning people who might use this excuse. You go to the grocery store, don't you? There's hypocrites at the grocery store. You go to the doctor, don't you? Hypocrites in the doctor's office. You go to McDonald's. There's hypocrites at McDonald's. You don't let the hypocrites there stand in the way of buying your groceries or seeing the doctor or getting your Big Mac. Why would you let the actions of son keep you from what God wants to give you? And also remember that the church is not made up of perfect people, but of those who are still struggling, still healing, and still learning. The fifth reason that some people give for not becoming a Christian is simply, I'm not ready. I'm not ready to make that commitment. Not ready to change the things in their lives that God expects. Now, of all these excuses, this is the most valid, I think. This is the most legitimate of the excuses. Because what I learned from our study when we did the Not a Fan series... God wants commitment. Jesus in his ministry expected commitment from people. Not perfection, but commitment. Remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus. And man, he had everything down, didn't he? What do I need to do to eternal life? Well, you read the scriptures. What does it say? Well, you know, honor your father and mother and don't kill and, you know, and love God and all these things. And Jesus said, well, that's right. And he said, well, I've done all this. I've done all that. Jesus said, oh, okay. Well, just, you just like one little thing. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. And then come and follow me. And it says the man went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, if you or I, well, maybe not you, some of you, I'll say that. If some of you or I were Jesus, I know what we'd have done. We'd have said, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Just kidding. Let's negotiate. Come, come, come on back. How about, how, about, how about half of what you have? And give it to the poor. How about a quarter of what you have? Give it to the poor. I need you. You're an important person. You're a good person. So I'm going to do whatever I need to do in order to get you to follow me and be my disciple. What did Jesus do? He let him walk away. He let him walk away. Wow. Remember that Mother's Day sermon that I did. Except a man hate his mother 
and father, brothers and sisters, and even his own life, he cannot follow me. Whoa. You mean I have to have that much commitment? Yeah. Jesus said the man who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for service in the kingdom. A man does not build a house and begin building it and not realize he doesn't have enough money to finish it. In John chapter 6, Jesus is speaking to the great multitudes after the feeding of the 5,000. And he preaches to them about being the, the bread of life. And except you eat of me and drink my blood, you cannot. And it says, Ooh, this was a really hard thing. And what verse is it? John 6, uh, 66, I thought they'd remember that. But anyway, John 6, 66, it says, and from that point, many of them deserted Jesus and never followed him again. And again, did Jesus go running after them? Begging them to come back? No. Now, we may not know a lot. We may not understand a lot. But God does want total commitment. He does want 100% commitment when we come to him. So the question really is not, you know, I'm not committed. The question really is, why aren't you? Why haven't you made that commitment yet? Maybe you think you have, I got time to do. I got time. I'll, I, I, I know in my heart that eventually I'm going to do that. I know it's the right thing to do. And, and at some point in time when things calm down in my life or whatever's going on, I'll make that commitment. Now, we all know what's wrong with that argument. And that is we're not promised any time. We're not promised that time. You may have it, you may not. Oh, I'm not, it's not quite ready to make that commitment yet because, because there's still some things in the world that I want to do, you know? I still want to have some fun. I still want to sow my oats or whatever. You know, there's some things, you know, I, I'll get to it and eventually I will, you know? And, you know, and remember the parable of the prodigal son, you know, the prodigal son, all he enjoyed himself, did all that, and he came back, you know, and so, so I'm going to kind of do that, and, and eventually I will come back. Eventually I will make that commitment. Two things. One, going back to the time thing. The prodigal son, I don't know if lucky is the word, blessed. He could have easily died out there. We're not guaranteed that time. And secondly, the consequences of living our lives in the world. I'm not talking about eternal consequences. I'm talking about consequences here and now. Consequences on our families. Consequences on people that we love. We can't undo that. Even if we, down the road, and you've heard me say this before, isn't it it wonderful when somebody late in life, an older person, 
comes and says, I want to, you know, I, I finally have made the decision. I want to follow God. Isn't that great? It's wonderful. But what about the consequences of that life? The consequences on family and on children and on others that we've been an example to and not in a good way. We need to make that commitment. I believe that this, of all the excuses, is the hardest to cut through. No one can make you want to come to Christ. If God's love, if the gospel message of what God did for you to make you one of his own, if that's not enough to make you say, I want to commit myself to God, I don't know. I don't know where to go with that. But I'm here this morning to tell you that there is no reason to wait. There is no good reason. There is no excuse for waiting. God wants you now. God wants you in what condition you are in. He wants you. But He does want you committed not perfect not with all the knowledge in the world but broken and humbled and saying to him I am a mess I can't do anything to fix myself I'm coming to you in faith because of your love your mercy, your grace, your sacrifice, because all that you have done for me. I hope nobody out here this morning is making excuses for not coming and following God. If you're here this morning and we can help or encourage you, we invite you to come now as we stand and as we sing. We hope by listening to this lesson, you have found a better understanding of the Bible. And through that better understanding, find a closer relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ, our living Savior. If you have any questions or desire more information, please feel free to contact us here at the Dangerfield, Texas Church of Christ. You can find us at dfield.org. That's D F I E L D. C-O-C dot O-R-G. Or you can email at dfieldcoc779 at aol dot com. Or you can call us at 903-645-2896. If you are local to the Dangerfield area, we would love an opportunity to meet you and encourage you in person at 818 818- West W.M. Watson Boulevard, Dangerfield, Texas, 75638. Our meeting times are Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. for Bible class and 10.30 a.m. for worship service, Sunday evening at 6 p.m. for worship service, and Wednesday evening at 6.30 p.m. for our midweek Bible class. Grace and peace be with you always.